Welcome to the podcast series, The New Student Pharmacist, where we discuss chemistry and pharmacy, as well as leaders in pharmacy careers, community, and chemistry and pharmacy research. We encourage you to support the work we are doing and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by subscribing for free. Note, the views on the podcast represent those of my guest and I. So in terms of treating acute cyanide poisoning, 
The reason why hydroxycobalamin is able to treat acute cyanide poisoning is because this hydroxide, hydroxide is displaced by a cyanide and it's passed out as cyanocobalamin, so it's harmless in terms of excretion. Now, scientific name of what I'll be focusing on, the form of B12 I'll be focusing on, is cyanocobalamin. The metal center is cobalt. It also functions as a coenzyme, but this R group is five adenosyls, so it's different from the cyanide that's attached to the enzyme cobalamin. It has a macrocyclic structure, which is a chlorine. It's similar to the porphyrin in heme. B12, like many like B and C vitamins, are water soluble vitamins, and B12 is metabolized in the liver and excreted by the kidney. So animals store B12 in, in their liver and muscles and some pass it into their eggs and milk. So this is just showing you that we have nine B vitamins, but the one we're going to focus on in this discussion is B12. So this piqued my curiosity. B12 as a coenzyme complements the catalysis in several different ways. But if you just generalize all of this, there is a serious specific interchange of groups on adjacent carbon, all of these things, if you to generalize all of these things. This is change. Um, in terms of nutritional benefits, it functions as a cofactor in DNA synthesis. It's a cofactor in fatty acid and amino acid metabolism. It's important in normal functioning of the nervous system, and it also functions in the maturation of developing rare blood cells. This is the coenzyme form, and this is the five that is attached as the R group in this. This is just showing you your side. You can have the cyanide, the hydroxyl, the methylcobalamin, or the denosylcobalamin. You have different R groups. So, the synthesis of vitamin B12. As you see here, you have ring A, B, C, and D. Those are synthetic targets. Um, you have the calcium condensation, you have cycle of addition, oxidation, all of these steps that you're seeing right here. I chose to briefly show these steps because these were the 38 steps that I had to focus on in writing my paper. <laughs> and this was Eschenbos' variant, and it was done, start, it was started first before the Harvard variant. The Harvard variant was started. In 1961, the Eschen was an ETH steric variant started in 1960. So here you see fination, analysis, this is the cell reaction, ring opening, the RNA steric reaction. This one is very interesting. Um, in the process of the determining that the water reaction that was just on this, the screen. In the process of me determining that, I was able to contact one of the former students and gave me insight into the mechanism that was occurring with the reaction. My favorite step, which I'll talk about later, the amino acid condensation, um, thionation, sulfide contraction, a really interesting step, aminolysis. You see the ring getting bigger. Bigger. So we are forming the macroscopic structure that composes a large portion of vitamin B12. This is a very important step, which I'll talk about later. The complexation step, alkylation, reduction, esterification, 
reduction. And hydrolysis, nominolysis, and the final step in terms of synthesizing the cyanocomata. So let's talk about some key words um, that were like pinpoints I focused on as I studied the B12 reaction schema. So these are some these are several words that stood out to me. Homologation, recording, aminolysis, thionation, methanolysis, the Woodman-Hoffman rules, and protection and deprotection. So homologation. This is primarily the main idea I take away from this is this occurs when the repeated structural unit is increased, and in this schema, the repeated structural unit was the methylene or the CH2. Um, now we have the macrocycle, which composes a large portion of the vitamin B12 molecule, and this was, or this is the porphyrin, which is different from the porphyrin. One difference is the porphyrin is larger. Now we have aminolysis, which was a uh, step that was repeated in the total schema of vitamin B12, and you can see the difference that you have occurring here. You have an alkylated amine being converted to an overall amide. And your thionation. The main thing to take note of here is you have a carbonyl being converted to a thiol carbonyl, in which you have the oxygen and the carbonyl being converted to a salt. And then you have methanolysis, in which you have methanol. This is just showing you an example from the schema, in which you have methanolysis occurring. But methanolysis in general is when you have methanol functioning as a nucleophile, similar to how. how Water function of the nuclear files in the hydrology. <coughs> now, the Woodward Hoffman rules. One thing to take away from Woodward Hoffman rules is it gives us insight into the mechanisms of some of the reactions <coughs> in the schema. And also, it tells us that reactions are never possible to proceed through aromatic transition states. So, if we look at this mechanism, if you go in the forward direction, you see protection, ethylene glycol, and if you go in the reverse direction, you see deprotection. So key steps in the synthesis. Yes. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Lord of the Rings. It's almost as if it was being they'll be told, you shall not synthesize, but they still did. <laughs> <laughs> so, it took them all the end, but they still did it. Now, as we mentioned already, the O2 is a variant, 1960 variant, which was started at ETH Zurich, and the 1961 variant, which was done at Harvard. It was collaboratively pursued in 1965. And the interesting thing to note is it required the work of 91 postdoctoral fellows and 12 PhD students from, I think, 19 different nations. Now, as you see here, you have A, B, C, and D, and you have the pouring structure. Now, I chose to put this in the presentation because there are some similarities between the Woodward variant and the Eschenwolder variant, in that you have similar intermediates in which you have the cyanobromide, and then you have the thiodextrin, which is similar in the Eschenwolder variant. So, you have similar reagents and intermediates. Um, both involve joining the rings, but the differences occur in the two different variants is that you have the closure, the cyclo reaction occurring between rings A and B in the Harvard variant, 
whereas in the ETH variant, you are bringing A and B. And this occurred by a photochemical process involving um, the stories of the race. So <coughs> I chose to work with the synthesis, um, and I picked out key steps that were my favorite from my studies of organic chemistry and just that made a lot of sense to remember the mechanism. So you have the cryogenic smith condensation in which you have ethyl methyl ketone reacting with acetaldehyde, and then you have the ring opening and the fination step. Both of all three of which stood out to me. Again, one thing to take note of in our synthesis of all four ring precursors for vitamin B12 is that all involve the first step being hydrogen smith condensation. And you have thionation in this case. You have thioesterification and reductive decarbonylation by a metal catalyst, and calcium strip condensation. And this step, as I mentioned, I got insights from this from Scott Schreiber, who is a professor that was fully home student of Harvey Now, my favorite example from the entire synthesis of vitamin B12 was the amino ester enamine condensation with a sulfide contraction using alkylated coupling. And as you can, if you look at this picture, you see that there are some, there are some differences in that this is written in German. Yes. It required me doing a little bit of translation by Google Translate. Not yet, but they were saying. But it was worth it because as I looked through it, I got more insight into what was happening mechanistically with the reaction So some key problems that these people faced when they were synthesizing vitamin B12. The introduction of the metal center cobalt, that was a challenge, they used cobalt chloride. The closure of the macrocyclic ring, which makes sense because the two different variants, the 1961 variant done at Harvard and the 1960 variant done at ETH Zurich, they closed the ring in different ways at different places. Um, the S differentiation, because if you look at cobalic acid, which is a synthetic target, um, if you look at cobalic acid, it has several different S groups. So you have to choose between whether you're going to protect one and then react the other, or deprotect one and then deal with it. Um, you have the introduction of the methyl group of the bridges, um, specifically at ring A and B and between C and D. And then you have to restore the loss of chemistry that occurred in the total reaction schema. So this is showing you the method of these Um, How they approach these problems. So the main things that they did was they worked with each other and they did an exhaustive study of the relationship between various isomer bioethers. <coughs> and this is something that stood out to me. In all of this, it required them using every conceivable precaution in respect to purity of reagents, exclusion of oxygen and moisture, and they had to do this with the greatest possible speed. Talk about a tough synthesis. Imagine trying to do this, do this in the lab over the semester. This would be really hard. Not that I have to do it. <laughs> yeah. Um, they used rigorous stoichiometric relationships, which makes a lot of sense. Now, key concepts I want you to take away from this presentation. 
Now, your condensation, contraction, compensation, regulation, reduction, and implications of the So, in this example right here, you have condensation occurring, which basically is two molecules coming together and result in the release of one. In this case, you have water being released. This right here is the sulfide contraction, specifically estrogen sulfide contraction, which is a key step in the joining of rings A and B, and B and C, for <coughs> the macroscopic structure for vitamin B12. Um, complexation, very important because cobalt plays a big role in determining the biochemistry of B12. Elimination was a key step. <coughs> Reduction was also a key step. And the implications of the Wolfram-Hoffman rules, it helped inform what will occur in different cyclo-isomerization reactions, specifically the AD variant, which is the Harvard variant. Some takeaway themes and ideas. Science is collaborative. That was one of the things I recognized as I read through the research and looked through the literature. All of those people work together on this one specific research project. Research takes time. I am not sure whether I would want to work 12 years just determining the structure of one environment. Um, yeah. And future initiatives and studies. Um, they're, they're also, they also mentioned they wanted to know why cobalt was so effective as a metal center. Um, I think more undergraduate applications can come about in this because you learn a lot. You basically cover like a series of reactions, some of which you study in two semesters of organic chemistry, one and two. And considering how vitamin B12 is mastered currently using microbial fermentation, um, I think more studies can be done in terms of efficiency and mass quantity studies. Now, this is what it took me a while to figure this out, to model through it, and figure out where can I possibly fit in an undergraduate laboratory application, not suggest one. Now, <coughs> Instead of suggesting going from hydroxycobalamin to cyanocobalamin, which is what, what takes place in the body, that's why they use hydroxycobalamin as a treatment for acute cyanide poisoning. Instead of suggesting that, I suggested that we convert cyanocobalamin to hydroxycobalamin. And the reason why I suggest that is because it would be a challenge to introduce or use cyanide to this toxicity, even though it would be easy to reaction due to the toxicity of cyanide that causes some concern, especially in undergraduate laboratory settings. However, which is vitamin B12, which is easily accessible because it's found in the drinks and it's also found as a chemical. Um, it can be easily found in hydroxycobalamin is used in medical settings. So it can be easily accessed. Um, also, cyanocobalamin is oxidize the hydroxycobalamin to the use of absorbic acid, which I saw in the study right here, and also under a specific frequency of light, namely ultraviolet light, cyanocobalamin and rate hydroxycobalamin. So there are many ways to do this, and we would be able to confirm that we carry out the reaction to the use of UV spectrometry. Um, specifically, if you look at the last peak of the different UV spectrum, you see that cyanocobalamin has a third peak at 550 nanometers, but this one has a peak at 526. So the difference in peaks would confirm to us that we achieved our goal in the reaction.
Now, in conclusion, overall, in my opinion, this was elegant and elaborate because Harvard, uh, initially when I started doing this, started doing this research project for um, chem thesis, I looked at the wooden bearing, but the wooden bearing had 70 steps. I chose not to use that one. I chose to use the Eschimosa variant, which had 38 steps. Um, exhibited exhibited many types of reactions in inorganic and inorganic chemistry, and it shows that hard work and collaboration with the right resources inside this paper. Yes, it requires persistence, single-minded, solitary hard work, and a belief in the importance of the research problem, all the things that require as I conclude, I would like to thank God, my family, um, my professors who are all present, um, and also my friends who are sitting here in the audience. Thank you. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're so glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is someone from the past. So we're going to be looking at the past work of... Dr. Paul Boyer, the Nobel Prize Laureate in Chemistry in the year 1997. So the rationale for this, it is possible to start the journey to understanding the great feats and triumphs of scientists in the past and present. Be determined and consistent. Keep at it. Be hopeful. Unrealistic. Persevere. So this is a continuation of the Think Tank series. Um, we're looking, we'll be looking at different speeches of Nobel Prize laureates in chemistry and other places as well, other areas as well, rather. And the analysis for today is Paul Boyer's Nobel Prize lecture. That's a text we're going to analyze. So for the video, for those who will see the video, that will be uh, corresponding with this audio version in the podcast, there's a picture of Paul Boyer receiving his Nobel Prize. Before Paul Boyer received his Nobel Prize, there was a speech by Professor Bertel Anderson of the Royal Swedish Academy of Sciences. The speech was given and he gave the story in a brief summary of the rationale for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. So fast facts about Dr. Paul Boyer. He lost his mother just weeks after his 15th birthday. He noted how he went to um, Brigham Young University, then to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for graduate school. He received several awards and won the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. It's important to note that he also read the Book of Knowledge, which is an encyclopedia aimed at juveniles, first published in 1912 by the Groyler Society. And he also read the Harvard Classics, which is a very interesting book series that I'm going to embark on reading. The Harvard Classics, uh, originally known as Dr. Eliot's Five-Foot Shelf, is a 51-volume anthology of classic works from world literature, compiled and edited by Harvard University's president, Charles W. Eliot, and first published in 1909. A short list of some of Volume 1, just Volume 1, the other volumes, 
within the Harvard Classic series involve works by Benjamin Franklin, John Woolman, William Penn, so the autobiography of Benjamin Franklin, the Journal of John Woolman, Fruits of Solitude by William Penn. It also involves other, other seminal works, such as the Confessions by St. Augustine and The Wealth of Nations by Am Smith. Definitely a series worth reading. Um, now, this is how I would analyze a Nobel Prize laureate speech after the second time or third time reading it. And this is my perspective as a graduate student in chemical biology. So before we start, let's just keep in mind it's possible. It's possible to read these things and to try and understand them with guidance and some research. So just a preamble on ATP synthase. So in order to understand ATP synthase, we need to understand that ATP synthase is a part of the electron transport chain. Um, the electron transport chain is organized in a particular way. It's established now that the electron transport chain is organized in which you have a respirosome super complex, which consists of complex one, three, and four. Um, it goes from one to three or two to three in terms of the flow of electrons um, throughout the complex. But without getting into the nitty gritty details, let's just focus on ATP synthase, which is complex five, and it's a complex of the ETC, as I said. ATP synthase is significant since it facilitates the production of ATP. Now, an overarching trend that goes along with the chemiasmatic hypothesis, which is which coincides with Mitchell's idea, who was a 1978 Nobel Prize in chemistry, the exergonic flow of electrons fuels the endergonic pumping of protons. So, some big ideas to keep in mind. Um, within this work, or this lecture, he discusses that the enzyme uses a novel mechanism that has catalytic steps different from any that has been seen before with other enzymes. ATP synthase has three copies of a large alpha and beta subunit with three catalytic sites located mostly on the beta subunit at the interface of the alpha and beta subunits. So these are subunits of this enzyme complex. So remember, we're talking about high-level structure, not really linear or, or primary or secondary structure, we're talking about higher-level structure. And it's also important to keep in mind that oxidative phosphorylation, um, it's an oxidative process, of course, it is biochemically significant because it produces a substantial amount of ATP. ATP is important since it's a common energy currency in the human body that in many cases is coupled to thermodynamically unfavorable processes so that they can work or run more efficiently. So in this talk, we will talk about why should we care, what the three points that stand out to me as a chemical biology graduate student, and what are the implications. So let's begin. Um, so let's narrow in, narrow in some more. We're looking at the mitochondria, which is a very significant organelle. We could talk about the mitochondria in terms of distribution, in which you have heteroplasmy or homoplasmy, in which you have different distributions or same distributions of DNA. Homoplasmy, same, hetero, different. Um, we could also talk about the mitochondria and its intricacies, in which you have significant phospholipids that make up the inner membrane, such as cardiolipid. We could talk about the mitoribosomes. We could talk about the crystalline membrane. We could talk about the power of the mitochondria and that the DNA of mitochondria is normally maternally inherited. We could also talk about mitochondrial diseases. But today, we're talking about ATP, ATP synthase. So, ATP synthase. Um, let's dive into Dr. Paul Boyer's lecture. Um, he spoke about how it's a key player in the processes um, 
ATP is a key player in the processes, and the abbreviation for ATP, abbreviation of ATP stands for adenosine triphosphate. So adenosine triphosphate, if we break it down, it is made up of the adenine base, which is a double ring um, functionality, and it's bonded to the ribose sugar or the oxyribose sugar, and then you also have the phosphate. So it has adenosine triphosphate has three phosphates. So he then goes on to discuss how, when he was a graduate student, Fritz Lippmann, big name, recognized the broad role ATP played in biological energy capture and use. The adenosine portion, for our purposes, can be regarded, as Paul Boyer speaking, can be regarded as a convenient handle to bind the ATP to enzymes. It has three phosphate groups attached in a row, particularly the last two that participate in energy capture. And we normally see that as the pyrophosphate. When the energy stored in ATP is used, the terminal anhydride bond is split, forming adenosine diphosphate and inorganic phosphate. The resynthesis of ATP coupled to energy input, this is a key idea, is catalyzed by an enzyme called ATP synthase, present in abundance in intracellular membranes of animal mitochondria, such as humans, such as in humans, plant, chloroplasts, bacteria, and other organisms. So these are good ideas to keep in mind. The ATP made by your ATP synthase is transported out of the mitochondria and used for the function of muscles, brains, and other tissues and organs. Um, the ATP, ADP and phosphate form when ATP is used um, is returned to the mitochondria and ATP is made again using the energy from oxidations. So let's continue on. Um, so this process is ubiquitous. Uh, for the most part. Um, all living cells contain hundreds of large specialized protein molecules called enzymes. So enzymes are globular proteins. Enzymes are very important in the body. They help to catalyze thermodynamically unfavorable processes. They serve as biological catalysts in which they reduce the E of A by the activation energy or provide an alternative pathway um, for the reaction to occur. Um, enzymes are very important in the body, whether it be a Processes such as respiration, digestion, a lot of biological processes are run with the machinery of which you consider to be enzymes. You catalyze hundreds of reactions. So the important and very difficult question that remained unanswered, and Paul Boyer spoke of this for many years, was how the ATP synthase uses the proton motor force to make ATP. Um, so as he was speaking, he, sp- he mentioned how um, ATP during net ATP synthesis, the three catalytic sites in the enzyme acting in sequence first bind ADP and phosphate, then undergo a conformational change so as to make a tightly bound ATP and then change conformation again to release this ATP. Let's keep reading. These changes are accomplished by a striking rotational catalysis. And we'll talk more about that in a later episode. Driven by a rotating in the core of the enzyme. This is coinciding with the ideas that we consider now in which ATP synthase is considered to be a molecular motor or pump, um, which in turn is driven by the protons crossing the mitochondrial membrane. Um, you know, he mentioned how these unusual features are energy-linked binding changes that include release of a tightly bound ATP, sequential conformational changes of three catalytic sites to accomplish these binding changes, and a rotary 
mechanism that drives the conformational changes. These features had not been recognized previously in enzymology. That's something similar. I would say so myself. Um, here we have a picture of the uh, layout of ATP synthase. So let's take it back a bit. In the mid-1950s, um, some 12 years after Paul Boyer received his PhD, um, some experiments on how ATP is made were conducted in his laboratory. Um, one concerning the capture of energy in glycolysis, which we know is an anaerobic, typically an anaerobic process, in which we have a, a small amount of ATP that's made. Um, glycolysis typically takes place in the cytoplasm of the cells. Glycolysis is important. Um, we go from glucose to pyruvate, passing through a variety of me- enzymes. So from let's just go through glycolysis quickly. Glycolysis, in which you have glucose, so the use of hexokinase is converted to G6P or glucose 6-phosphate. Um, using phosphoglucoisomerase, we go from glucose 6-phosphate to fructose 6-phosphate. Using phosphofructokinase, we go from fructose 6-phosphate to fructose 1,6-bisphosphate. Using aldolase, aldolase spits out um, DHAP, dihydroxyacetone phosphate, and G3P. Using triose phosphate isomerase, we interconvert um, DHAP to G3P. Using GAP-DH or glyceraldehyde phosphate dehydrogenase, we convert G3P to 1,3-BPG or 1,3-bisphosphoglycerate. Using phosphoglycerate kinase, we produce 3-phosphoglycerate. Using phosphoglucomutase, we produce 2-phosphoglycerate. Using enolase, which proceeds through an E1-CB mechanism, we produce PEP or phosphoenol pyruvate. And using pyruvate kinase, we produce pyruvate. Pyruvate kinase then shuttles or then goes through um, pyruvate dehydrogenase to produce acetyl-CoA that feeds into the TTA cycle. The material of oxaloacetate combining with acetyl-CoA to form citrate to the enzyme citrate synthase. So that's just a recap of glycolysis and significance in aerobic respiration. So we found that, going back to the lecture, we found that the oxidation of glyceraldehyde 3-phosphate to occur without the participation of inorganic phosphate. This is him knowing this, suggesting participation of an acyl enzyme intermediate. Extension of these experiments and salient findings in the Raqqa group, again we have a big name, demonstrated that a sulfahydryl or sulfahydryl group on the enzyme was acylated and the acyl enzyme was cleaved by inorganic phosphate to form 1,3-diphosphoglycerate, which in turn transferred a phosphoryl group to ADP to make ATP. Key idea, take note of this. Demonstration that two covalent intermediates, the acyl enzyme and the phosphorylated substrate, preceded ATP formation, made it seem logical to seek for similar intermediates in oxidative phosphorylation. So established conceptual precedent led to further investigation. That's what this is saying. And as we and others learned years later, this was not a useful approach. He said, so of more relevance to ATP synthase were experiments in which you had the isotope of oxygen, 18 oxygen, and 32 phosphate. Um, those are the radioisotopes initiated because of the demonstration by Mildred Kahn that mitochondria would catalyze a rapid exchange of phosphate oxygens with those of water, phosphate and oxygen with those of water. So we found that the phosphate experiments um, were 
using the overall reaction of oxidative phosphorylation was dynamically reversible, which makes sense. Um, with some 16 years later, that we found that the simple explanation that no intermediate was formed and that rapid exchange resulted from the rapid and reversible formation of a tightly bound ATP. So moving along, let's talk about the catalytic sites. Um, Dr. Boyer further went on to say in his lecture that chemical derivatization studies such as those in Bragg's laboratory, again, we have a big name, and summarized in his reviews that he referenced, showed that all three 13 subunits although with identical amino acid sequence, had distinctly different chemical properties. That is something to take note of. We were also impressed by the studies. They were also impressed by the studies of Fite's laboratory showing that one defective mutant 13 subunits stopped catalysis. And by related mutational studies in Senior's laboratory that favored the participation of three equivalent 13 subunits for catalysis. So... The conclusion that you reach is very likely is that it's very likely our three sites participate in an equivalent manner. Subsequent events have strengthened this conclusion, um, although he said that some doubts remain of which he was not aware of at the time. The probability that three sites participate equivalently has guided experiments in his laboratory since the presence of three 13 subunits first seem likely. So, he also spoke about the rotational catalysis within this enzyme. Um, some ideas to mention is that there were related experiments that took place in this laboratory with sodium-potassium ATP synthase. Um, that's something to note. So, what three points stood out or stand out to me? The intricacies of ATP synthase. The idea that all living cells contain enzymes, and these enzymes are very important, especially in biological reactions. And also, uh, or finally, oxidative phosphorylation is important. Additionally, with ATP synthase um, and how it proceeds with its mechanism of catalyzing the formation of ATP. So what are some implications? When it comes to disease etiology, whether it be Alzheimer's, neurodegenerative diseases, or other diseases that can be uh, attributed to mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial disease, or whatever the case may be, of course, that's to the bioenergetic paradigm. Um, whatever the case may be, ATP synthase is very important because it produces a key energy currency in the body that is used and is coupled to a lot of reaction. So it pays to understand these things. So I told you what why we should care. It's an important enzyme in biological reactions. Well, three points are still to me. The structure of the enzyme, the intricacies of it, um, the fact that enzymes are very important in biological reactions and also oxidative phosphorylation, which is catalyzed, which involves ATP synthase, is a very important process. And what are the implications? The implications for disease etiology. Disease, uh, uh, looking at the origins of diseases. So here we have it. Paul Boyer's lecture, a summary in the eyes of a chemical biology graduate student at this time. Hopefully it helps. So... If I was to address this, or if I was categorizing it, or breaking it down for kid, for example, um, ATP synthase is important. This enzyme, or this machine, or this protein is important because it produces or helps to form or facilitate the formation of a key energy currency or a key molecule 
that it's important to the boy. So that's for the kid. For high school student, this is important because it's associated with something that we learned about known as respiration. Respiration involves how the body is able to produce energy from food. So for the graduate student, the lecture is important. It produces seminal ideas, or it introduces seminal ideas, uh, helping us to this day and informing our work. So thanks again for listening. So once you have it, this again you have it. This is the New Chemist podcast um, in which we discuss uh, chemistry, which simply put is the science of change. And we also discuss ideas such as research, careers, COVID-19, and a variety of other ideas within the realm of science. We've had guests. This is within the Think Tank series. Of course, we reference the work of Dr. Paul Boyer, the lecture, which is on, which is publicly available on the Nobel uh, Foundation's website. And also we reference a book that outlined the lecture and speech, the introductory speech by the Dr. Bertel Anderson. So, Professor Bertel. So, thanks again for listening. Hopefully this benefited you. Hopefully it helped. Stay tuned. This is just a preamble to more that will come. Also stay tuned because this upcoming week and the weeks to come, we will have interviews by Dev Mandavia, interviews with Dev Mandavia, um, Julio Rodriguez, and Janae Burroughs, who are all leaders in their own age and stage and right. So thanks again for listening. Just to note, the views in this podcast reflect those of myself and my guests. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Welcome to the New Chemist Podcast. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Spotify and Google Podcasts. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Delmar Larson. Thanks for joining me today. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Delmar Larson is a professor in the Department of Chemistry at the University of California, Davis. Dr. Larson received his PhD from the University of Chicago in Chemistry and did postdoctoral stints at the Free University in Amsterdam studying biophysics and the University of Southern California studying chemistry. In 2005, Dr. Larson moved to the University of California, Davis as an assistant professor 
He was promoted to associate professor in 2012 and was promoted to full professor in 2019. Dr. Larson's current research interests extend across many scientific disciplines, including biophysics, physical chemistry, molecular biology, and computational modeling, with a common thread of investigating and characterizing rapid condensed phase dynamics. Dr. Larson is the founder and director of the Libretex project, consisting of 12 independently operating and interconnected libraries that focus on augmenting post-secondary education in specific fields in both the STEM fields, the social sciences, and the humanities. Please welcome Dr. Larson. Okay, Dr. Larson, thanks again for joining me. Um, what have been your long-standing interests in the field of science? Well, uh, I, I've always enjoyed pursuing truth, uh, or at least what I thought was truth. <laughs> uh, it wasn't until later on in my education that I understand that science is not entirely that, uh, if you understand science properly um, but it's that desire of trying to identify truth has uh, guided me in terms of what we what I, I do um, and what I've been doing for the last um, multiple decades Wow that's good it's good so can you give me one specific example of where this occurred where you were seeking for truth or going after truth or the desire was evident in some of your experiences, whether it be in research or in the work you've done with Libretex, which um, I, from my understanding, I would say that has created opportunities for a lot of people to gain access to more information and to further their skills and develop their acumen in terms of the chemical sciences and other areas as well. So, well, well I mean, definitely. So, uh, as a research level professor, I have obligations in terms of maintaining a research laboratory. In my field of science is ultra-fast laser spectroscopy of primarily photoreceptor-based systems okay. and other photoactive systems. And then in the last 13, 14 years, we've been pursuing the Levertex project. In its earlier incarnation, it was called the ChemWiki which is meant more of a dissemination of content in order to facilitate the education of uh, students, uh, both in America and abroad, because that's a, a guiding principle of that. Uh, I, I would say the desire for pursuing truth uh, uh, is more in the former category rather than the Libertex project, which is a very different uh, perspective on doing things. Uh, okay. And, you know, I, I should be clear about that. Um, you know, basically every manuscript that, uh, you know, of the hundred or so manuscripts that I've published uh, pursues some level of what we consider to be truth. That being said, I should be specific, and this is a common issue that uh, lay people have in terms of science, that while science pursues truth and use truth uh, in quotations is actually uh, uh, is more pursuing models in order to interpret reality under the hopes that we identify truth, but 
you can argue from a philosophical argument, we will never get there. Um, and that's particularly important, especially in uh, current discourse of science, uh, especially in America, about uh, recognizing the limitations of science. Uh, and if you believe that science resolves truth, then uh, when science naturally evolves, it starts to truth shouldn't naturally evolve uh, or this truth of the underlying material and, and so there's a disconnect that, that's involved in but nonetheless uh, it, it's, uh, truth and knowledge has always been something that's uh, guided me uh, far more than other issues like grades for example uh, much to the displeasure of uh, some of my uh, high school instructors <clears throat> okay. uh, so, so. Uh, okay. I can certainly discuss any manuscript that you may want in, in more detail, if I could remember uh, the manuscripts that you may be interested in, but it, it's, a, it's a general aspect. And it, it underlies all uh, research uh, active faculty uh, that are constantly, uh, constantly pursuing these scientific uh, endeavors. Okay. okay, that's good, that's good. So my, another question I have, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general? How do you see, how do you maintain view of your end goals, uh, even in research, even when you encounter whether it be a challenge or something of that sort or an obstacle, how do you maintain view of the bigger picture? Well, um, I would say the answer is poorly uh, these days. Uh, the, the, everything is in, in, in sheer chaos uh, and I'm not entirely sure where things are going to lie in the upcoming months uh, or even years. Uh, <clears throat> and it's obviously important in order to have a good uh, uh, balance between work and home life uh, and such. Uh, unfortunately, many of my colleagues and myself included uh, don't have a great balance of that. Um, so our work uh, is constantly... Uh, extended into our private life um, and I would say uh, that's I definitely am in that, that category uh, <clears throat> and there's certainly a lot of uh, so I'm not in a great position in order to provide um, recommendations for people who are trying to see the, uh, the balance between the in terms of the bigger picture of career um, the key point is to recognize that multiple career paths are available uh, and that you can switch from one to the other as needed. Uh, for example, uh, when I started as a professor 15 uh, years ago, it was research, research, research as the primary uh, obligation or priority uh, in my, uh, my work life. The, in the last 10 years of that has been slowly transitioning into the LibreText project, as you mentioned before, uh, because that, uh, I could see, has a very uh, meaningful impact. Uh, and while research is very uh, fulfilling in many ways and many aspects, it can, it can have a, a, a paradigm shift of, uh, of all of culture and all of reality, or at least the way we view reality, uh, the vast majority of research uh, is incremental or uh, doesn't fall in line in that category. So it's hard to see the impact of what you're doing. You know, it's nice to see, you know, how many, what your age index is and how many citations and things like that. But when it's all said and done, uh, it's the Libre Text project that really uh, helps to put me into a context of seeing the uh, impact of what I'm trying to do. And then that really uh, drives me to pursue. Okay, that's good. That's very good. So as we continue, another question that comes to mind is, how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of science? 
Um, well, I mean, it's really easy in order to go to this quote that Einstein uh, gave uh, many years ago in terms of basically arguing that imagination is one of the most important aspects associated with doing good science, and that's very true. Uh, so it, it's the uh, scientists that are very rigid in the way that they view things oftentimes uh, have a very short half-life um, and, and are able to deal with the fact that ch things change and you be able to, uh, to deal with it. So uh, one of the nice things about being in a large university provides us uh, faculty that has the opportunity to be exposed to a wide range of different uh, activities, uh, research in a variety of different fields uh, and of and, um, and various ways of implementing things. Uh, and that right there uh, is probably one of the most important aspects associated with uh, maintaining uh, my ability in order to be adaptive uh, and creative with what's going on there. If I were in a much smaller institution um, with uh, far fewer faculty coming in, visitors, uh, speakers, and such like that, I think it would be a harder opportunity or a harder chance for me to be able to maintain that. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's very true. It's very true. So, um, another question I have for you. How have you sought or found the right environment for you to thrive scientifically and intellectually? How, have you, how did you find it? Because uh, I think anyone, uh, any observer could say that you are thriving scientifically and intellectually. So how would you describe the process or the journey for you finding this place or right environment? Well, uh, as a chemist, you typically make a decision sometime in graduate school uh, and perhaps earlier about whether you want to pursue, pursue academia uh, or if you want to go into industry. Uh, and they have their different cultures and benefits and detractions associated with that. So that's the first point that needs to be done in order to decide uh, where to go. Uh, naturally, in both of those directions requires finding a uh, place to sit. Uh, uh, and uh, when it comes to academia, uh, it actually turns out that there are, if, if you want to do research level um, at the R1 institution, uh, there are uh, a handful, multiple handfuls of departments that you can go to um, uh, and you go on the market and, and such. And you typically, uh, if you're lucky, get a handful of uh, offers that you're able to, to work from. Uh, and then you're largely stationary for a period, period of time. So you don't have a lot of flexibility, um, knock on wood. And many people do move around, um, but uh, most faculty don't move around from one campus to another campus uh, and then that's largely where you're stuck and I use the term stuck quite loosely here it's not meant to be a negative uh, necessarily but uh, the mobility is uh, far less than what you can expect in uh, industry where you can go from one transition one spot to another spot part of the reason for that is in academia um, you have the opportunity of getting tenure, which provides a strong stability and protection for your job, which is exceedingly important right now in this COVID era. So that is tied into the position. So once you have that, you're less likely in order to move. Although when you do move, you oftentimes can negotiate to have tenure come with you. Um, so that's not meant to say that you're up in the, uh, it's random in terms of uh, where you find the right environment. Uh, once you come to the campus that you're at, then it's up to you to find your uh, colleagues that 
you're able to communicate with uh, and the community uh, uh, within the campus in order for you to be able to fit into and, and pursue that. And again, by being in a larger institution, I've been fortunate in order to be able to find uh, many uh, groups and many faculty that I've had great scientific relationships with uh, and collaborations in order to move forward. So it's important to always uh, look for these people in order to move forward. Okay, yes, that's true. That's very true. Um, as well as, how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment? Well, I mean, one of the important things uh, to keep in mind with that question is that at, when you're running a research uh, program, you're running a research group, which means that you have graduate students, oftentimes undergraduate students, maybe postdoctoral research assistants and such like that. So you're intrinsically running a collaborative uh, group. Um, uh, and the more important aspect is how to run that group effectively. Um, and uh, unfortunately, many of us uh, learn that by trial and error, less than... Uh, being trained in terms of how to be an effective manager in order to run these students and move it forward. Um, so <clears throat> uh, that uh, collaborative aspect is baked into how research is typically done in academia. It's also baked into how uh, research is done in, in industry, although I know less about that, uh, in part because there's a lot of uh, return investment evaluations and uh, oversight and feedback in order to make sure that revenue and costs are all used effectively off of that. But I can't really comment confidently on that, uh, that culture. Okay. Yeah, it's true. Uh, also, my question for you is, why did you choose chemistry as a field to major in? Why did you choose chemistry? You know, I, it's always been chemistry for me. Uh, it's okay. never been a choice. <laughs> so, let me phrase that. The biggest choice I had in college was what type of chemistry I was interested in. Okay. Whether, whether, and physical chemistry came out quite naturally because of my uh, interest in math and physics and such like that. Was, uh, but I always had a desire for biological chemistry. In fact, for the first quarter uh, uh, at the University of Washington, uh, I was a biochemistry major uh, and then I switched over to physical chemistry but I, I overlap with biology physics and chemistry in my research okay so it sounds like you you have done work in biophysical chemistry yes okay um my question to you also is what specific area of physical chemistry really was your main interest was it thermo thermodynamics or quantum mechanics or was it a mixture of both no, I um, I love thermodynamics, uh, but I'm uh, but I'm a kineticist or dynamicist at at heart. Uh, okay. <clears throat> um, uh, quantum mechanics is beautiful. Uh, statistical mechanics is beautiful. It's it's all it's all beautiful um, uh, when you get into the the, the details behind it. Um, uh, it so, um, you know, I was trained in graduate school as a dynamicist and specifically an ultra fast laser dynamicist. So, dynamicist, so I was interested in things that happen on a femtosecond, picosecond, and nanosecond time scale. <clears throat> um, before that, in, uh, uh, when I was an undergraduate, uh, I was trained in a gas 
phase uh, molecular beam uh, healing cluster uh, experiment with some mass spectrometry and a few other things associated with that. So I went from gas phase to condensed phase and uh, transitioned from uh, uh, dynamics in the, that are more uh, energy resolved to dynamics that are uh, uh, temporally resolved. Uh, okay. So. okay. Um, so you said it was always chemistry for you. So even in your doctoral studies, you didn't feel like changing your mind or you didn't consider changing course? Well, you know, if you talk to anyone who's gone through graduate school, typically, at least in America, which is on the average of five years in order to get your PhD, uh, you get the blues right around the third year. Okay. Uh, and that's when you need, uh, that's when you start looking at uh, do you really want to do this uh, sort of thing? Now, that the, the magnitude of the blues uh, depends upon um, the, the healthiness of the relationship with your advisor uh, and your colleagues in the group, and, and that is invariably related to the campus that you're in. So some campuses are less healthy than other campuses. Um, but uh, certainly I went through the blues uh, in order to, to look at alternative uh, options out there. Um, <clears throat> uh, but I, I stuck with it uh, and moved forward and quite happy that I did. Yeah, and you could see the fruits of your labor, the success, as you see right now. Um, my last two questions for you. Do you have any advice to those wanting to pursue the field you are currently working in? Uh, are you referring to ultrafast laser spectroscopy, to chemistry, academia specifically? or Academia to specifically. Um, Specifically towards undergraduates and incoming graduate students and current graduate students, so students in general. Um, <clears throat> I, I've seen a lot of students come in that may doubt themselves, uh, okay. doubt their ability in order to move forward. Uh, and I've seen some graduate students that uh, overly inflate their expectations of how successful they're going to be based off of their intelligence, uh, how well they do in classes. Uh, and I think the single most important trait in order to be successful in graduate school is not the education, as I'm afraid to say, it's not the intelligence, although that is always good. It's, it's always the dedication, uh, how much effort you're willing to dedicate to your program and making it successful. Um, as long as your your education and your intelligence meets a certain level, then it's just basically uh, how much skin are you willing to put into the game in order to move it forward. Uh, and and that is that's that I would say is the single most important uh, component associated with the success of a graduate student, and something I I, I encourage graduate students uh, to develop early, which is a good work ethic, and because that makes your advisor happy. Uh, okay. to see your progress. Uh, when your advisor happy, the letters of recommendation get stronger uh, and everything is a positive feedback in order to move forward. Uh, and then you can flip it around by saying a poor, poor work ethic typically doesn't get you very far at all uh, for the same reason. So I've seen very intelligent people that in institutions I've been in before, you know, University of Chicago and, and Berkeley um, and other places uh, that have uh, collapsed and failed because they just didn't have the work ethic in order to be able to put the time in necessary to be successful in graduate school. So it's the number one thing that I would feel is important for uh, students to cultivate. Yeah, I agree. Work ethic is very important. Um, so 
my last question for you. What has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received to date? Uh, <laughs> it's really quite broad. Um, <clears throat> so if I were to target that towards students looking at graduate school programs, the most productive advice that I could give and that I have gotten uh, was that when you're looking at graduate programs uh, and you have been accepted at several graduate programs, to go to the program that has the most number of faculty that you would like to work with. So if you have a campus that has a specific person that you definitively want to work with and no one else that you really want to work with, the odds of you getting into a specific program is not always 100%. If there's a specific uh, graduate, specific uh, faculty member. So uh, having the secondary uh, options available uh, are exceedingly important in order to be able to move forward. So all graduate program, of all advice for at that stage, uh, that's the one I think that's most important in selecting graduate programs um, uh, out there. Um, Everything else uh, is a function of the work ethic that I talked about before. You just continue on. You want to continue that uh, and move that forward um, uh, through every stage of what you're doing. At some point, uh, uh, so when you become a faculty member, uh, you have flexibility to be able to guide your research in the ways that you want. Um, and, and that's one of the aspects where the creativity that you brought up uh, a while ago is exceedingly important in order to find out where you want your research to go. Um, but that also gives you a bigger picture about, well, what do you want to do uh, in your research, in your activities? And you have in most, as a faculty, uh, especially as a tenured faculty member in, in most American institutions, and I think most institutions abroad, uh, you have a lot of freedom to decide about what you want to do. So for example, you mentioned the LibreText project. That right there doesn't fold directly into this research active project uh, that is encouraged uh, for faculty in my position. Uh, nonetheless, I had the utility freedom um, uh, in order to be able to pursue it and I pursued it quite aggressively um, uh, where it's taken even some of the work ethic that I was talking about away from my research uh, but that's because uh, I value it at the same level as I value my research so it's important to be flexible uh, and be dynamic and pursue what you want to pursue when you have the opportunities in order to do so okay that's good that's very good Thank you so much, Dr. Larson, for joining me today. It is much appreciated. No worries. Sounds great. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I. Welcome to The New Chemist. We're glad you're listening. 
Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Dr. Silas Cook. Thanks for joining me today. It is so good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Dr. Cook began his academic career at Reed College in 1995. After earning his BA in 1999, Professor Cook took a position at the Genomics Institute of Novartis Research Foundation in San Diego, California. There he worked to unravel various signal transduction pathways related to kinase and GTPase cell signaling. In 2001, he began his graduate studies in total synthesis at Columbia University in New York. Under the auspices of Professor Samuel J. Danishevsky, upon the completion of his PhD in 2006, he took a postdoctoral position in the laboratory of Professor Eric Jacobson at Harvard University. In 2009, Dr. Cook became his independent began rather his independent appointment in the chemistry department at Indiana University. Please welcome Dr. Thanks, Dr. Cook, for joining me today. It's so good to have you on. So, Dr. So good Cook, to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Yes, yes, yes. So, Dr. Cook, um, what have been your long-standing interests in the field of science? Um, so, I have pretty varied interests in the field of science. I think uh, human biology is tremendously interesting, and I think chemistry is a great way to probe human biology. Um, non-human biology is also very interesting. Plant biology is very interesting. Uh, and I think chemistry is a great way to probe and understand plant biology as well. Um, and so I think a lot of what drives our science or my thinking is how do we paint a clearer picture of how things work both within us, uh, and around us. Okay, good. Good. Um, so... In terms of uh, a clearer picture, what, what specifically are you referring to? You said you paint a clearer picture of those things around us and within us. Or what, what yeah, exactly. So, so, so how, how, how do things work, right? So right. We, we have pretty vague general ideas of how certain cells work in concert in order to uh, make up an organ, but we don't really have a good idea about how they communicate, what chemical messengers are used in communication uh, in order to control a wide swath of cells that might be an organ or might be an organelle in, the, in, the, in, the, in plants, for example. Okay, so so being able to understand those things, understanding how chemicals uh, orchestrate huge numbers of cells on the order of trillions of cells uh, at the same time, both in, in humans and plants is tremendously inter- interesting. Yeah, yeah, that's definitely true. Um, so along the same line, along the same uh, direction, um, would you say your research interests first started there around the desire to create a clear picture of what's occurring on in biology and chemistry? Or would you say it was more from like your upbringing that uh, cause you to have the research interest that you have now? 
Um, it's always difficult to pinpoint um, where your interests get started, right? Because you're you're always refining your interests, becoming interested in new things, new ideas, new concepts. Uh, but I grew up on a farm, right? Okay. And I think uh, as a farmer, uh, you sort of have an inherent interest in how the world works and how things develop both from a plant standpoint and from a human standpoint uh, and understanding how those things manifest, how they interact, how they get along, um, symbiosis, as well as you know, trying to kill one another uh, mm-hmm. is all based on, on chemicals. Uh, and so mm-hmm. understanding these chemical messengers, these chemical uh, um, communication that occurs between cells uh, it's hugely important. Yeah, I agree. So um, along that same line, uh, what have been your most effective and impactful ideas to date? What would you say have been some of your most effective and impactful ideas within the scope of your research or within the scope of your academic career thus far? That's a great question. I don't know if I can put a finger on a single event. Um, I think probably some of our most impactful work in terms of being adopted by other chemists, being used widely in industry, uh, came from my students. Uh, they're not my ideas. They're my students' okay. ideas. Okay. Uh, so I think one of the most important roles that I play is not necessarily coming up with ingenious ideas, but creating an environment where students can do their best, come up with their best ideas, and, and move the field forward. Um, I, I try to um, create as many environments as possible where people can speak their mind uh, without fear of, you know, condemnation or, or, you know, being belittled or anything like that, such that good ideas bubble to the surface. Um, mm-hmm. You know, a, a great idea isn't necessarily great upon first inspection. Uh, I, I like to tell people that I have a trash can full of good ideas. It doesn't mean they actually worked in real life, right? Mm-hmm. And so actually getting an idea to work in lab is hugely important. Uh, and it's driven entirely by students, postdocs, undergraduates, the whole, uh, the whole environment that we work in. Uh, without that environment, uh, we just have ideas on paper, and that doesn't mean anything. That's true. That's very true. So, Dr. Cook, um, I know you've done a little bit, uh, done some work in uh, radical chemistry. So why spend time researching radical chemistry? So we spent a lot of time trying to teach transition metals that are good at radical chemistry how to do two-electron chemistry. Okay. Um, And it turns out that it's really difficult to teach these metals to do two electron chemistry when really what they want to do is single electron chemistry. And so it was around probably 2014 uh, that I realized that we were trying to teach a fish how to climb a tree uh, Mm -hmm. and and the fish realized it wasn't very good at that job. Uh, And so why not uh, go with the flow and let the fish swim uh, and, and when we did that, we found that metals like iron and manganese are tremendous single electron uh, uh, redox wells of 
of reactivity. And we can employ that reactivity to forge really difficult carbon-carbon, carbon-fluorine, carbon-oxygen, carbon-nitrogen bonds uh, that we wouldn't be able to do with two-electron chemistry that is traditionally uh, used in palladium, even nickel, uh, platinum, rhodium, ruthenium catalysis. Okay. Okay. So it's interesting that you say that, you know, because when I hear about these one-electron processes that we do in the lab that we metals for it almost seems similar to like what occurs in the electron transfer chain in which you have iron sulfur clusters and stuff like that so definitely interesting so in terms in layman's terms uh what impact does this work within you uh this work with uh radical chemistry what impact does it have so or what are we, the implications right so so in layman's terms um we're interested in making bonds that people care about Okay. Right. And so the pharmaceutical industry, the agri-sciences industry, the academic industry, the materials industry are all trying to make things of relevance. If you're in the pharmaceuticals industry, you might be trying to make a small molecule drug. You might be able to, you might be trying to make a macromolecule. Uh, but the bottom line is you're trying to make new bonds of interest, right? You're trying to create chemical matter that will um, modulate whatever activity you might be interested in. Uh, and that's true of, of agri-sciences, that's true of materials. And so if you look at Lipinski's rule of five, right, where molecules, small molecules under a molecular weight of 500, uh, C log P of greater than a certain benchmark, um, and so on, you have roughly 10 to the 60th organic molecules that you can make. And so 10 to the 60th is a pretty large number. Most people aren't used to working with numbers on that scale, but to put it in perspective, Right, the universe is about four times ten to the eighteenth seconds old, and so that means you could make a new molecule every second since the Big Bang occurred, and you wouldn't even be scratching the surface of potential small molecules that fit Lipinski's rule of five. Um, and so, another way to phrase that is. You could spend your entire life making molecules no one cares about. Mm -hmm. So why not make molecules that people care about? Uh, and so we really take our cues from medicinal chemists, from process <laughs> chemists, um, across a wide range of industries to see what they're struggling with, to see what bonds they have to take multi-step to get to. Uh, and we try to simplify that. And radical chemistry... Uh, with the transition metals that we use, tends to simplify synthetic sequences. And so, you know, what used to take 5, 10, 15 steps to make, you know, we make in 3, 4, 5 steps. Wow, that's uh, good. And, and, and that makes a big difference to practicing organic chemists, people out there in the real world that are actually trying to access a specific chemical environment, a specific chemical space. Um, okay. And so we take that very seriously. 
Uh, and so we're constantly combing through the medicinal chemistry, the process chemistry literature, mm-hmm. looking for areas that are underdeveloped, areas that process chemists or medicinal chemists are struggling with. Um, and we and we try to improve uh, both step counts, yields, um, and obviously uh, synthetic uh, effort to get there. So um, I just have I have a question along the same lines. Um, would you say that your radical chemistry uh, is more effective in the realm of hydrogen abstraction or carbon-carbon bond formation, or which bonds do you say primarily are the ones that it really has the most effect on, or it really has been beneficial for? So, so certainly CH functionalization has been important to our group over the last five or so years. Okay. Right, and and, and I, I do think being able to take uh, common heteroatoms, oxygen, nitrogen, sulfur, and using those heteroatoms to abstract hydrogen atoms nearby to then reveal a carbon-based radical that can be functionalized uh, with transition metal chemistry to forge new bonds um, has been hugely important to our group. Um, and to a lot of other groups as well, right? Mm-hmm. And so David Naguib, Jenny Royzen at Duke University, and others have, have used this uh, hydrogen atom abstraction technique uh, to functionalize sp3 hybridized CH bonds. Um, you know, prior to our work and others' work in this field, um, generally you would use a two-electron, three-atom uh oxidative addition type mechanism to functionalize a CH bond. And that worked quite well for SP2 hybridized CH bonds, but it didn't work so well for SP3 hybridized carbon atoms. Um, And so this hydrogen atom extraction and functionalization uh, really um, took off once you used H atom abstraction as the tool to functionalize those sp3 hybridized systems okay yeah that's good um so uh going in a different direction how do you maintain view of the bigger picture in your career and in your life in general yeah i wish i knew the answer to that question um i really (laughs) don't um so so as i mentioned previously uh i i like students directing their own projects right and so I, I, I really try to act more as a consultant on their work right. as opposed to an advisor that has a top-down iron fist approach to their project. Uh, and, and, and so a lot of times projects develop in unusual ways that I didn't anticipate at the outset. And students really make the big picture decisions on where to take that chemistry. Um, and I'm just along for the ride. I just sit back <laughs> and, and get excited about the work. Um, mm-hmm. And so, so for me, um, I don't know that I have so much a big picture, steer everything in a certain direction approach okay. uh, as I do uh, sit back and, and let the, the, smart people in the room, namely my students, take over and dictate okay. decisions and directions for a project. Okay, that's, that's definitely one approach. You it seems, it seems as if uh, 
kind of let things let things flow naturally then yeah i mean they zig and they zag right um so sometimes projects uh we have that seem very very exciting uh are moving in the right direction we're we're over the moon about the potential uh that end up in a you know burning car crash at the bottom of a hill Um, and that happens right um there's not much you can do about it uh the science Mm. is what it is Mm. uh but there's other times where we think things a relatively sleepy result not very interesting ends up you know driving a whole new wing of the of the group um and and those are very exciting and so the most important thing is just to keep an open mind yeah yeah keep an open mind let the data soak in uh and go where the data tells you to go i agree yeah so i have a question what do you say as being a big player in your research exploits, would you say the fundamental science concepts or would you say the advanced ideas that uh, take place in, within the literature? Or what has been like an uh, overarching thing? Because uh, from my understanding, uh, from my ex- discussions with other people, it's talk about how fundamental science plays a large role in what they do on a daily basis. Sure. I think fundamental science uh, drives everything at the end of the day. Um, But day to day, you might have a plan uh, in order to achieve some outcome, but you have to be able to throw that plan in the trash and move with what the fundamental science tells you to move on. Um, You know, we're interested in new information, certainly. Right. Mm. I mean, we all want to refine and develop a better understanding of the world around us. Mm -hmm. Uh, And we do that through shrewd experimentation. That said, um, you can spend a lot of time developing a fundamental understanding of something no one cares about. That's true. Uh, And so don't do that. What you you want to do is is spend some time trying to develop a fundamental understanding of a process, a reaction, a biological phenomenon uh, that people care about. Um, You know, you you brought it up earlier in terms of single electron chemistry, but, you know, the Krebs cycle is hugely important, important, right? Uh It is. Yeah, from citrate to oxaloacetate. And and, yeah. and, and and there's a lot of beautiful, beautiful chemistry, beautiful biology that was developed mm-hmm. along the way to understand the Krebs cycle. And mm-hmm. that is a completely meritorious, you know, work on the TCA cycle, understand how that works, because it is so fundamental uh, to the world um, that it, it, it warranted the extra time spent developing uh carbon labeling studies to follow the carbon footprint and the Krebs cycle to work out the stoichiometry. Uh, All of that was fundamental science, but it was on a process of huge importance. And And so, exactly. So, so if you, if, if, if you have the right problem, you can pull out all the stops 
and and study the the smallest of details in that process and all of it benefits mankind right yeah, but, that's but if you work on something nobody cares about you can still pull out all the stops <laughs> you can still spend a lifetime uh, working out the details but at the end of the day um, if no one's going to use your uh, technetium catalyst to do what you spent a lifetime working out to do it doesn't mm-hmm. really matter that's true it has to have so so societal relevance um, so um, my question to you is um, how do you maintain, given that you allow your students to uh, kind of direct certain projects, how do you maintain vision and teamwork in your environment? How do you make sure that everyone's working together as a collaborative spirit within your group? How do you maintain that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think that's an ever-changing question, certainly right. in the time of COVID. Um, yeah, I agree. I agree. And so I, I, I wish I knew the magic formula that would breed cohesion in the group. Um, but to be honest, I, I think I failed my group uh, during the time of, of COVID. Um, you know, we, we used to have a lot of uh, group activities in terms of problem solving, idea generation, um, subgroup meetings, all of these things where we could get together in a room with a chalkboard uh, and, and develop ideas and, and, and develop hypotheses. And I was never really able to recapitulate that in a virtual environment. Um, and I, I would say that probably morale in the group is at an all-time low. Um, we've done online Zoom-type activities. Um, we've tried problem-solving online. We've tried... Uh, idea generation online, and it just does not work the same as everyone being in the same room with a chalkboard or or a couple sheets of paper and a pencil. Um, and and so it's it's been difficult. Um, yeah, I would say uh, you know it's good that you're being honest, Doctor Cook. But I would say this, you know, at, at least uh, one one thing I come to understand is you know challenges to allow us to grow. Eh? To allow us to provide a platform or impetus for growth, yeah. So it's definitely um, I appreciate your honesty, you know, because some people like to paint a picture that everything is peachy, dandy, rosy, and fine. But it's if not. it's not, it's not. Yeah, because COVID has been challenging for everyone, at least in, from everyone I've encountered. I should say, I can't speak for everyone, but people I've encountered, yeah, COVID has been a challenge, especially within yeah. the academic context. I, I think that's right. I, I think the challenge is actually being understated, quite frankly. Uh, oh. You know, you have these big industries like, for example, accounting, banking, uh, finance, uh, computer science, for example, Silicon Valley. Um, all of these industries have been pretty recalcitrant when it comes to offering online or at-home uh, sort of Zoom uh, working environments. Mm-hmm. And those are the, the areas, those are the, the careers, really, that could benefit, quite frankly, quite a bit from being online, from being virtual, right? I mean, you can do an Excel spreadsheet virtually. 
Um, you know, as you're editing it, other people can be looking at it. Everybody knows the syntax of Excel, uh, and so it's actually quite amenable to to at home work or or virtual work. Uh, chemistry is not. Yeah, that's right? true. Our, that's our true. environment very very different. Right? We're more we're more like a a 3M or a or a Boeing or you know some some of these companies that actually have to make things. Um, and you can't do that at home, right? You can't take a five-piece ton of titanium and hammer it into a plane in your house, right? That has to be done in a foundry. It has to be done in, in a proper location, and it requires the coordination of a large number of people. Um, you know, we're fortunate in academia and that our groups are relatively small, but at the same time, it requires a high level of collaboration of discussion of you know face-to-face interaction in addition to the long hours at the hood the long hours doing experiments um, but if you have an experiment that you're going to set up for example that takes three hours to set up uh, you probably want to run that idea by one or two other people before you mm-hmm. spend three hours setting it up yeah that's true Right. And, and, and so losing that, uh, you know, immediate feedback loop, being able to bounce ideas off your lab mates, bounce ideas off of me, for example, uh, you know, just wandering into my office and asking a simple question about a simple reaction. Uh, all of that being gone has hurt research. It's hurt progress. Wow. So. What's the plan then, Dr. Cook? I take it you haven't been able for, you have not, I take it you have not, uh, uh, not considered a plan. What is the plan of action? <laughs> I think it, a man of your expertise has, has probably some plan of action or has already enacted a plan of action already. Uh, right. What's the plan? So, so bef- before I give you my plan, I, I, I want to give you a piece of data that I find pretty interesting. Um, so I taught two courses this spring semester, spring of 2021. One was completely virtual, completely online, and one was entirely in person. Um, I recently got my teaching feedback, so these questionnaires that we send out to students about the difficulty of the class, what they learned in the course, um, whether they had sufficient access to the professor, whether the learning objectives were were clear and met during the course of the course. Um, And it was interesting to, in the same time period, compare this completely online class with a completely in-person class. In the completely in-person class, I got my standard reviews, which are, this is a very difficult class. Uh, The teacher was completely dedicated and made the information clear and, and understandable uh, even though it was complex, uh, and I really enjoyed the course, I would highly recommend it to other people, uh, etc. On my online class, it was the exact opposite. This was oh, the wow. worst class I've ever had. The teacher didn't make learning objectives clear. Uh, the teacher wasn't clear about uh, the information being disseminated, etc. And so it's it's really interesting to see that a I need more training on how to uh, develop a more successful online course, um, okay. which 
doesn't surprise me. But just the dichotomy, <laughs> just the dichotomy between online versus in person, you know, the same sort of information, the same uh, delivery uh, just does not translate over Zoom. Yeah, that's true. And I think that speaks. I think that sentiment is true in a lot of different areas. And it's true for a lot of different professors as well at other universities too. So I've heard similar sentiments from my friends who are taking classes on Zoom, as well as my siblings who I have uh, who are in school. They talk about how challenging it is to um, sit under Zoom instruction for hours and hours in high school. So I, I can even imagine when the concepts become more convoluted and more difficult, it's yeah, even more challenging. That's right. That's right. Um, And so, so I've I've also heard the opposite, though. Uh, And so, I was I was talking to a faculty member in the Kelly School of Business this morning at a meeting I was at, uh, and he said that actually his online courses uh, get reviewed better than his in-person courses, Uh, and his hypothesis. Uh, which was presented to him by a colleague of his in the Kelly School of Business, was that he is much more intimidating and seems like a bigger asshole in person uh, than he does online. And so so his online reviews were actually better um, because he he comes across as as an easier to understand and get along with human being uh over okay. does in person okay well that's that's a different perspective completely very sure. different yeah so um in terms of as we wrap up why did you choose chemistry as a field to major in was that because of your upbringing on the farm or was it because you had a mentor a high school teacher what would cause chemistry to be the particular for you yeah, so that, that's a great question, and I wish I had a short answer where I could say Mr. McReynolds in, in <laughs> high school or whatever. Oh, uh, McDonald or something like that. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, exactly. But, but, but my, my answer is a little more convoluted uh, in that I, I, I was always interested uh, in science growing up, certainly. Um, in high school, I probably had the world's worst chemistry class available in high school. Uh, So my high school chemistry class was taught by uh, an assistant coach of wrestling um, at my school. And wrestling was a really big deal at my high school. We we would send people to the Olympics, for example, straight out of high school uh, from, from my wrestling team. So wrestling was far more important than chemistry, so much so that we only had four textbooks for the entire class of 30 high school students that took this chemistry course. So the um, wrestling coach thought it made the most sense to bolt those four textbooks to the benches in the chemistry lab. And we would spend our chemistry class reading with six or seven people around the same book chapter by chapter every class wow it was awful um and so certainly high school chemistry did not turn me on to chemistry um what did turn me on to chemistry is uh i was able to double major in chemistry and biology in in college um Mm -hmm. and 
Then I was fortunate enough to take a position at Novartis um, in San Diego after college, where I was able to do in the lab both fundamental biology and um, organic synthesis. And what I learned during my undergraduate and my time at Novartis was that the questions you can ask in biology are very, very interesting. But the actual experiments you need to do in the lab to answer those questions are very, very boring. Um, and so running PCRs, growing up E. coli, uh, mammalian cell transfection, whatever it may be, is not very interesting. Uh, and moreover, if you're going to be isolating some DNA that you grew up in some bacteria, uh, you take an Invitrogen kit that says use buffer A for this procedure and buffer B for that. And you don't even know what's in those buffers. Uh, so it was very black box and not very interesting. Whereas in chemistry, you can test your hypotheses very, very quickly, I learned. And so if you have an idea, if you think that you can make a bond or break a bond, you can go in the lab, mix some chemicals together, and then take an NMR, take a GC, take a mass spec, and literally within a couple of hours be able to test pretty profound hypotheses very, very quickly. Moreover, if you need to do a particularly difficult experiment, you might need to blow some glassware, right? And so you can learn how to blow glass, you can learn how to make instrumentation, uh, you can learn how to make custom uh, reactor setups to, to run a given reaction if, if, if you think stirring or, or light permeance might be an issue. Um, and all that is, in my opinion, great fun. Um, and so I learned pretty early on that uh, the day-to-day -day life in chemistry is a lot of fun and you can test hypotheses very, very quickly. Uh, whereas the day-to-day -day in biology is pretty boring. Um, and every six or 10 or 12 months, you might get an answer to a question you asked six or 10 or 12 months ago, which is a little too slow for my ADHD brain. Okay, sure, sure, sure. Um, so uh, my final question to you, Dr. Cook, this has been a, definitely an interesting interview, to say the least. <laughs> yeah, so I appreciate your honesty, really do, really do. It's very timely. Um, so what has been some of the most beneficial advice you have received? You obviously, you, you, you're, you're, you're doing a good bit of work, doing research. You're a professor, full professor at IU which is, has a really good chemistry department, and I'm not just saying that because I'm here. Um, <laughs> yeah, I I think that to be true. So what has been some of the beneficial advice or the most beneficial advice you have received? Um, I, I've received such great guidance from the mentors I've had in my life, quite honestly. Uh, at the undergraduate level, um, Pete Schultz at, at Novartis, uh, was just a tremendous mentor uh, and had the most sage uh, one-liners that you can possibly think of. I, I really enjoyed that. My PhD advisor, uh, truly, truly amazing intellect. And again, outstanding one-liners. Um, you know, for, for, for example, one, one, one of the... Uh, uh, great pieces of advice I got from my PhD advisor 
was uh, to just make the bond, just put the two pieces together, glue them together if you have to. Um, and so I, I, I wasn't quite clear on what molecular glue I would need to use in order to make the carbon-carbon bond I, I was faced with. Um, but, but definitely he had some good one-liners. Um, and, and my postdoc advisor as well. I mean, you know, I, I, I've really been fortunate to be blessed with great guidance all along the way. And even once I started my academic career, not only did my PhD advisor and my postdoc advisor continue to give me great advice, um, they, they also, you know, taught me how to seek out the advice I needed to be successful in my own career, right? There's, okay. no, there's no one person in your life who is going to be your mentor in every aspect of your life, mm -hmm. right? You're going to need uh, an advisor for committee assignments. You're going to need advisor for grant writing. You're going to need advisor for new research directions. You're going to need an advisor for your personal life. All of these things are different people. So, yeah, I appreciate that. And just as we conclude, you know, you made the, the I wish we had met this stuff, Oxford. I wish I had asked this question earlier because you made the statement seeking out people that would give you the right advice or the advice that you need. How do you go through that process? How, how have you done that? Is it through, just through experience or is it through like you uh, inquire or was it, was it, that's a guiding principle yeah. behind so, so I wish I could give you a, a, a succinct answer, but in, in, my, in my experience, in my life, one of my greatest strengths and one of my greatest weaknesses is that I don't get embarrassed. And so I don't care if I feel like a fool or look like a fool in front of anyone. And so That's powerful. That's that, powerful. Is, that is powerful. I can walk into anybody's office, no matter how high or low the ranking they are in the world, um, and ask a dumb question. Uh, I feel yeah. perfectly comfortable doing that. Um, and most people don't, I've learned. Um, and so the drawback is that I don't actually recognize in other people that they might be reluctant to seek advice or reluctant to look like a fool in front of me or in front of someone else in the room. Um, and, and that's been a challenge for me to try to navigate, uh, to try to draw people out of their own shells to, you know, seek the advice that that they need, right? And so it's not often obvious what advice is, is going to tip the scales in your favor. And wow. so you need to take a lot of shots on goal. Sometimes you're going to ask for feedback from someone who really doesn't give you the feedback you need. Mm -hmm. um, but you listen patiently, uh, you assess that feedback, and you decide, is this someone I'm going to come to again in the future or not? Mm -hmm. Right. And so, so, you know, in that way, uh, you know, I've probably sought out a hundred mentors uh, and I probably only have three. Right. Yeah, so, that's fair. So, so, you know, sometimes you have to look like a fool in order to get the information that you need to make the best decision that you need to make, uh, whether mm -hmm. it be in your personal life, professional life, grant writing, uh, student recruiting. I don't care what the topic is. Right. Some people are going to have good advice and some people are going to not have such good advice.
Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is the new chemist where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I.
Thanks for listening to the podcast series The New Student Pharmacist, where we discuss chemistry and pharmacy, as well as leaders in pharmacy careers, community, and chemistry and pharmacy research. We encourage you to support the work we are doing and follow us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts by subscribing for free. We are so glad that you were able to tune in today. Note, the views on the podcast represent those of my guest, and I take care and all the best.